Grapple fans, and welcome to the latest edition of Match of the Week, the podcast within the Let Me Tell You Something oeuvre, in which myself, you Let Me Tell You Something co-host Lorcan Mullen, and your other Let Me Tell You Something co-host Simon Cross, take it in turns to pick a match for the pair of us to dissect, pull apart, and put back together as a more critically acclaimed or derided or somewhere in the middle whole. And for this match, we're going with two familiar faces, but one in a position that not a lot of people will expect to see them. And you even sent me a text whilst you were watching it saying how weird it was, the sights. Yeah. So, Simon, where are we? When are we? And who are we watching? We are in Mid-South Wrestling. We are on the date of the 16th of November, 1985. And we are watching... A match for the NWA world title between defending champion Ric Flair and blue-eyed babyface Ted DiBiase. <laughs> Does Ted DiBiase have blue eyes? I haven't actually deigned to check, to be they fair. They really should have been green. <laughs> if they had... I don't know how good contact lenses were back then, but Vince would have thought of it, I imagine. As is obvious from the start, one of the reasons that I wanted to pick this match was to see... Ted DiBiase, who was one of the first memorable characters of my own childhood of wrestling, like someone that I could distinguish immediately. I remember having a WWF cards collection. This is before sticker albums. Um, my cousin Matthew, who was the person that got me into pro wrestling, had these cards, and i get some of his and then start buying some elsewhere. Mm. And just the sight of the million dollar man Ted DiBiase with black and gold and white and his, at that point, bleached blonde, well not bleached blonde, but blondish hair and the beard, but just the the laugh and every photo that he's posing and he's about to do that cackle. And really he was in many ways the embodiment of the Vince McMahon golden age of wrestling heel, a simplistic gimmick that's easily understandable, very, very clear presentation, and just a perfect amalgamation and taking something and making it larger than life, but something that's relatable within the world. Yeah, absolutely. And that was all that I knew of Ted DiBiase throughout the whole of my childhood. I loved watching his matches. I loved seeing him get beaten and getting beaten up. And then he comes to WCW, and then it kind of starts to drift away from me. Yeah. And he kind of becomes a bit of a symbol of, like, the bitter old guard. I remember when you'd hear him talk, he'd say, oh, these kids now, none of them know how to work. And then this is when I'm starting to get into the smart world of wrestling and just finding out these lives that these wrestlers had outside of the time that I saw them on screen. Mm. And with Ted DiBiase, there are essentially two versions of him in wrestling there was the larger than life million dollar man gimmick a gimmick that was sold to ted dibiase as this would be the gimmick vince mcmahon would have if he were to become a wrestler yeah and this workhorse second generation although his father that was a wrestler before him was his stepfather oh, okay although i wonder if i believe it might have been that his mother was also a wrestler i might be wrong there But this one of this generation of great workers that came out of that period of wrestling that was circling around that who's the best worker in the industry, who's the best worker, at least in North America, and who could 
potentially be a figure to be the NWA World Heavyweight Champion and be that touring champion that was the role that was designated to the somewhat perceived best wrestler in the business at that time, be it uh, Jack Briscoe, Dory Funk Jr., Terry Funk, Harley Race, and then the man that essentially took the role that he was also in the running for, I suppose, in Ric Flair. And obviously Dusty Rhodes is in there too, but he never had that long run with the title going from territory to territory, nor did other champions of that era like Tommy Rich or Kerry Von Erich. Money's in the chase, as always. And the argument that I think is regularly made to this day, and I think you can make a very good case for it, that Ted DiBiase might be the greatest wrestler to never have a run with the world title. Okay. There are other ones you can put in that mix, I suppose, like David Boy Smith's. Kurt Hennig, you can't, because he was uh, AWA world champion for a while. Mm. And obviously... that. In the later years, especially in the WWE, you can argue that even guys like Matt Hardy were world champion, depending on how you <laughs> ECW title. Now you're stretching. <laughs> but back in that 80s, 70s period, to get even in consideration for that title, you had to be elite level, even if you didn't even win it. Yeah. And it's funny seeing Ted DiBiase, the workhorse that goes bumping around, and you saw elements of that at time in the wwf but he also as a lot of the great workers of that time when they came to the wwf had to either slow down or simplify their styles because of both the product that they're presenting to wwf and also just the toll of that work schedule across a national even international marketplace yeah as opposed to working the territories which were a smaller area but maybe at times an even more intense seven days a week schedule as well and a harder working style yeah and and also the characters that they were presenting now like the evil villainous heel the the rich man heel it doesn't really work like flip-flop and flying everywhere like why would you why would you exert the effort you'd cheat you'd, you know you'd take all the shortcuts wouldn't you well yeah but he was also the traditional heel bump and feed and he would do those sort of bumps for guys another match i've always wanted to do for match of the week and we will at some point because i think you can argue it's one of the most if not important then one of the most interesting of all the survivor series traditional elimination matches even if it's not necessarily a great match just all the different things that are a part of it which was the million dollar team against the dream team in the 1990 survivor series which was Ted DiBiase, the Honky Tonk Man, Greg the Hammer Valentine, and the debut of The Undertaker against Dusty Rhodes, Coco Beware, and the Heart Foundation. And if you want to see that brief glimpse of Ted DiBiase, the super worker, in the WWF at that time, then the final three to five minute stretch that is just DiBiase against Bret Hart is some of the best stuff that you'll see on WWF television in ring wise for that entire period just those three to five minutes Mm. and this is so i wanted to see the workhorse dbrc i also wanted to see the mid-south dbrc okay because that was essentially his other great territory run mid-south also arguably all japan where he was one of the top guys in there before he left for the wwf and then briefly came back to in 1993 Uh. but then one bad bump in one of those more intense all japan matches left him with a broken neck that led to his retirement only 39 years old he was when he retired as well 
So the DiBiase we're seeing at this point is about 31 or 32. And also what's curious about this as well is that you've got Ric Flair, and this is still Ric Flair, the touring world champion. All this right, okay. just around the time that the Four Horsemen is starting to form in Jim Crockett promotions. And he's still hitting the territories at this point. He's doing Mid-South, as they showed him he was on the TV show the week before, dealing with Butch Reed in an angle. With Ric Flair, it's coming to the end of that run of them having to make the towns in all these different places because, as we said, it's 1985. Hulkamania has begun. And the NWA essentially, the world titles and all of the belts essentially being almost owned lock and stock by Jim Crockett Promotions is coming into existence at this stage. So DiBiase's time to win that belt, I guess, has kind of come and gone at this stage with Jim Crockett Promotions essentially holding the power. Mm. But what I do also think is that this match, I've picked this one as much for the angle as anything and to get a sense of why Mid-South Wrestling at this time period was seen as some of the best, most forward-thinking yeah. wrestling on TV at the time. Whilst presentationally, it's certainly not state-of-the-art. And that's always going to be the case with Bill Watts. If you watch 1992 WCW, it's <laughs> almost as dark and grimy looking as this is. <laughs> but also with almost as much great wrestling in it as well. Mm. And almost as much nepotism as well, because it's funny, because uh, obviously Bill Watts famously pushed his son Eric yep. in WCW. And here we have his other son, I can't remember what his name is now, as the co-commentator with Jim Ross at various points during the show. Oh, okay. Right. I think what's great about it is that it tells such a cohesive story and an understandable story. And it's a one-night babyface turn for Ted DiBiase. Ted DiBiase was one of the ultimate heels in Mid-South. Oh, okay. His feud with Junkyard Dog a few years earlier, like people were ready to kill DiBiase <laughs> at that point. And he'd also had a great feud with Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Ah, uh, who we did see between the angle and the match, didn't we? Yeah, and seeing him as this no-nonsense, tough-talking brawler yeah, without the comedic angles. And I guess this is where you see what Vince did to these great workers and talkers in the simplification of them. It's not just Ted DiBiase, the great wrestler, who wears a loaded glove. It's Ted DiBiase with the Million Dollar Man, and he's got his set look, and his gimmick is that he has loads of money. Hacksaw Jim Duggan, in this, he's a tough guy brawler. But in WWF, it's now because you're called Hacksaw, you walk to the ring with a plank of wood. Yeah. (laughs) Jake the Snake is also in this territory at the time, and his father, Grizzly Smith, who obviously let's not go into that guy, Yeah, he was also a part of this. He's like presented as the matchmaker of Mid-South at this point. But Jake the Snake, is his nickname is the, the Snake because of his slipperiness and his ability to be treacherous. But then he comes to the WWF and it becomes, no, you are going to bring a literal snake to the ring. I know writers that use subtext and they're all cowards. <laughs> but again, as a kid, I would have reacted more to a WWF presentation of this than this more violent and more extreme and dirtier and grimier and manlier version of it and that was Mm. the whole thing about bill watts famously in his territory the rule was if you got into a brawl in a bar you better win it oh you're knackered because if you lose it you're out the whole roster's just filled with these incredible tough guys 
and great athletes and fighters and football players and wrestlers and everything. Yeah. You know, you got Hacksaw Jim Duggan that was almost in the NFL, a top college football player. Same with Butch Reed, tough guy. DiBiase was a legit athlete, second generation. Dick Murdoch, all of these guys had came from great college football backgrounds. And then there was Jake the Snake Roberts, who was never a great athlete, but he had all the other attributes. Too. Yeah, and was second generation as well. So he had the, the nows, yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah. and no, but in terms of the angle, you're right. It's not WWF. Unlike Wu-Tang, this is not for the children. <laughs> there is so much blood. So much. It's like watching Carrie. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those ones where the guy who gets cut is bleeding so profusely that the person that he's fighting ends up covered in blood as well. Yeah. And amazingly, again, because it's Ric Flair, he is not the person that has caused the blood. Yeah, no, not A, it's not him blading, and B, he's not the one that did it. <laughs> exactly, in both senses of the word. Yeah. And also, another thing that's fascinating about this is watching not only Ric Flair, the touring champion, and I love one of the things that they say is that, essentially, this was supposed to be Butch Reed challenging for the title because he beat Ric Flair in a non-title match the week before. But Ric Flair had placed a bounty on Butch Reed, and then Dick Slater comes in and collects the bounty by going after Butch Reed, and they snap his neck and everything. Ah, okay. And so that means that there's an opening for the title shot that was supposed to be Butch Reed's on this episode. And the matchmakers decide that it's going to be Ted DiBiase, and then Dick Murdoch comes out... And I think he was a tag team partner of DBSC at that point. And he says on in the promo, you know, I knew you. I got you into college football. I got you into wrestling. You've got to do this as a favor for me. Showing, one, the main storyline is that Dick Murdoch's the older guy and he doesn't have much many more years left and he doesn't know how many more chances this is going to be come along. Yeah. And it also plays up that Ted DiBiase also knows how fleeting a chance it is to get an NWA world title shot, and he's not going to turn it down at any point whatsoever, even after his friend and confidant begged him for it. And then after that, then said friend turned on him and busted him open by ramming his head into the ring post and left him with massive blood loss. And he has to go to the ring with a big plaster over his head that is ineffective to say the least. Yeah. Also, Brain busters him onto the concrete as well. That's right at the end of it, too. That is right at the end. Sorry, I do apologise. But yeah, this narrative from start to finish over this episode is so perfectly told, and there's this suspense going on as Bill Watts gives an update backstage about the condition, and he goes into proper medical detail about all of the different things that Ted DiBiase has suffered from. Just on that point, what I liked about that and it's a trope I see in the modern day where the camera shot is the trainer's working on the guy and then your roving reporter, be it your Alex Marvez in AEW, for example, is like, you know, trying to speak to the guy whilst the trainer's working on him. And then the guy goes, oh, I'm so tough. I'm going to kill you anyway when I get my hands on you. What I liked about this is you didn't see DiBiase at all. It made the injury so much more real by not showing him. Yeah. He doesn't cut a promo saying, I don't care. It's like, he's just on sheer will. And the selling that DBRC does throughout the whole match is just top-notch babyface underdog selling. Again, something that we never saw from DBRC, obviously, during his entire run. His entire run in the WWF was as a heel, both as a wrestler, and then when he came back as a manager afterwards. 
Yeah. And it was only very shortly in WCW towards the end that he became a babyface turning on the NWO. But that was really it for Ted DiBiase as a babyface until uh, this was like his last and only great run as a face. And although I think he'd been a face before and turned heel and then turned face again in Mid-South. Oh, okay. What I love about it is that he truly does sell it as someone who's lost a severe... Well, he has lost a severe amount of blood. On the <laughs> on the to scale, TBS, he has to be considered like a 0.9. Oh, yeah. And it's almost instantaneously. I mean, how quickly and how deep he must have done that blade job to himself. It's just covering him. And it's there even 20 minutes later when he comes out for the match after it had been postponed, essentially. And again, Flair is like this... A supporting player to a large narrative, which was so many times what the touring champion had to be, that he was the guy that was the catalyst for the Von Eriks versus the Freebirds feud in world class. Oh, okay. And again, he might go to a territory, be facing their top babyface, and then the top babyface ends up losing because of chicanery involving maybe the top heel in the territory as well. Mm. And so Ric Flair is essentially being the antagonist in all these other protagonist storylines across the country. And again, as I said, this is really towards the end of it. I mean, in 1987, I think it is, the UWF is sold to Jim Crockett Promotions, and that's really the end of any other territory that was ever really affiliated with the NWA outside of World Class. And then they go into really a partnership, World Class, AWA, and Memphis go into a partnership towards the late 80s as well. But the match itself, I think, is only no more than 10 minutes, I think. Yeah. Because it starts in media res. Essentially, it starts 20 minutes into the match. We've lost the babyface shine. We've lost the turning point. We've lost the beat down. And we've lost the moment where the blood starts to pour. We're in that finishing straight. We're essentially almost starting at the moment (laughs) where Kenny Omega gets hit with his head rammed into the table. That's kind of where we are at this point in the Forbidden Door match, or or at the point where Will Ospreay has been DDT'd on the exposed turnbuckle. Yeah, yeah. To do the other side of the story. And as I say, it's like DBS is working on instinct, so the notion of blood loss and concussion is played up really well, because when there are moments when he hits Flair with something, and again, it's just like this idea of instinct, when he's covering Flair, it almost becomes this case he doesn't even have the presence or knowledge to even know how to pin anymore. Yeah. He falls back when he should be pushing forward on the legs to turn it into a roll-up or something. He never hooks the leg. Yeah, because he's just going at, like, half speed until he gets the babyface flurry. And, again, seeing Flair not doing the begging off, not being the one that really, in many Flair matches, even though he's the champ, he works from underneath. He sneaks a little bit of it in, the begging off, because it is Flair. (laughs) Yeah. But again, this is 1995 Flair, so all the cliches aren't necessarily there anymore. We see the Flair flip into the turnbuckle, and we do get the gorilla press spot off of the top rope as well. But we don't get, like, the Flair... I don't think we get the Flair flop, the forward face bump or anything like that. We get, like, a weird backwards one when they're fighting out. Ted's uh, in the corner, and then Flair seems to, like, get rocked by a punch and then does, like, a weird backwards Flair flop. If that makes sense. Basically takes a back bump off a punch, but in a delayed fashion. But there is never really a point where it's like DBS is in full control and Flair's in true trouble. It's like Flair gives him an opening or he finds an opening. 
yeah. and gets it. And Flair is just constantly just ruthlessly going at it, opportunistic, showing that ruthless streak you need to be the champion. Yeah. Well, he didn't want to be there. Like like he says at the start, it's like, well, I've, I've, I've done my job. I, I get to go home now. And everyone's been that guy of like, you know, leaving work. And it's like, actually, you got more to do. <laughs> so he's annoyed, but it, it's somewhat understandable. <laughs> What's also funny as well when you think about Ric Flair and Ted DiBiase, because I do think they are sides of the same coin, really, in how they can work, in how they move. DiBiase similarly could be a great chicken shit heel. He would also do begging off in the WWF. He would also... And and actually, the figure four leg lock is one of his moves, as we see in this match when they say, the two masters of this move! Yeah. When he applies it. So he's proper full, old school, trained NWA, can do all that Jack Briscoe, Dory Funk stuff. And again, because of the people that he was really programmed with in the WWF during that whole time, there was really never anyone where it was like a a fellow technician. I suppose Randy Savage a little bit, Mm. but it was always like Hulk Hogan, the big boss man, the ultimate warrior, Dusty Rhodes. Virgil. (laughs) Yeah. And I wonder with DiBiase as well, if it's also a case of... You never really appreciated how big Ted DiBiase was, because he never had like that... He never had that steroid type of physique. I don't know if he did or didn't take steroids. Yeah. So it's another one of those guys where you just don't appreciate how big a dude he is. Yeah. I remember seeing him put into like a tug of war on a random wrestling superstars or whatever episode where it was WWF guys against WBF guys in a tug of war. Oh, God. And that was just a moment where you just saw him and you appreciate, wait a minute, this guy's basically as big as anyone else here. Yeah. It's just he never had the pecs and he never had the abs. And again, that's probably a genetics thing. Mm. But he, he had the size. He never looked out of place when you realize it in hindsight against Hulk Hogan or the Ultimate Warrior. He was their height. He was their weight, just not with as much muscle definition. Yeah. And I wonder if that was one of the reasons maybe they never went with him, because he wasn't as showy-offy an image, like, compared to Ric Flair, who's the strutting peacock Buddy Rogers type that maybe Mm. it needed more in the 1980s at that point, whereas DBRC in this stage was still hearkening back to that 70s workhorse, sensible, no-nonsense kind of guy. Yeah. But again, as he showed then when he went to the WF, he could do the cartoony stuff as well. Yeah. Like, if if Ric Flair had been signed up by the WWF in 1986, Vince would have probably given him the Million Dollar Man gimmick, because that was essentially what he was. I'm Mm. rich, my shoes cost more than your house, I'm putting a bounty on this guy's head, I love belts so much I'm going to have my own one. You know, the Million Dollar Championship was kind of looked like the big gold belts. I don't want to say Codyverse, but it was in his own little world most of the time in the WWE, uh, F. Obviously, he was part of the Saturday Night Main Event famous angle with with the uh, plastic surgery referee. It's it's so funny in hindsight. Oh, man. To many, that's that's kind of the peak of wrestling. And he was apparently promised a run with the WWF title at that point. Yeah. That just whole thing just doesn't sound, doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. He was supposed to win the title at WrestleMania 4 and have a run with Hulk Hogan. And Randy Savage was supposed to win the Intercontinental title off of the Honky Tonk Man. But the Honky Tonk Man refused to lose the title to Randy Savage. So they what? gave Randy Savage the world title instead. I didn't know that. So, so hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Just to clarify. So, because the IC champion doesn't want to drop the title to Randy Savage, Randy Savage then gets a bigger title. 
Well, the argument was that because obviously back in those days, the WWF had two or three tours going on at the same time. Yeah, your A circuit, your B circuit, and your C circuit. And very often, the way that those would be booked would be that the A circuit would be headlined by the world title match, the B circuit would be headlined by the intercontinental title match, and the C circuit would be headlined by the tag team title match. Okay. Again, probably an example of why championships other than the world title became less and less important in the 2000s because it wasn't part of the building their business plan around having a strong intercontinental or tag team champions. So mm. they were just, just part of the furniture. Well, I guess they also maybe didn't want to go by the logic of having a face world champ and a face IC champ or a heel world champ and a heel IC champ. Yeah. So if they were going to keep having a heel IC champion, the Honky Tonk Man, they wanted to have a face world champion, Randy Savage. So they couldn't have DiBiase and the Honky Tonk Man as the two singles champions at the same time. They made Demolition the tag champs at WrestleMania 4 as well, so you would have had an all-heels champions, which is very rare. Ah, uh, not, re- not at WrestleMania 4, you're right. We do have, like, obviously had periods of time with heels holding a lot, if not all, of like the major belts. But it's incredibly rare, and not until years later. It is funny doing those counter-factuals. I suppose if DiBiase was going to get the world title, it would have been sometime around 82, 83, 81. Mm. But they, the board voted for Flair, and as we say, Jim Crockett Promotions kind of became the de facto epicentre of the NWA from 83 onwards with Starcade and how they saw it went, and Flair was always seen as part of that North Carolina territory. And so if maybe the, the cultural powerhouse of the the non-WF territories had been Mid-South, maybe it would have been DiBiase who would have become the perennial champion. And again, it wouldn't have been about showy storylines and characters like it was under Flair and the Four Horsemen. It would have been just still the serious touring champion going from place to place. Yeah, And DiBiase, I think, could have done it. But I think he's just always been a a victim of poor timing. But in a weird way, maybe it's better to be remembered as the best non-world champion as opposed to the 15th best ever world champion, in a weird way. Yeah, no, I take your point. I don't know with DiBiase, though, because it's the character that makes him stand the test of time. In far as his WWE run goes, I mean, I didn't really know a lot about his Mid-South stuff prior to this match. Like That's one of the texts I said. It's like, Ted DiBiase looks so weird in red. Even though I knew I wasn't going to see it, part of my subconscious was like, right, I'm going to see the Million Dollar Man face Ric Flair, even though I knew that wasn't the case. It's just, he's so tied with him. Yeah. You see Chase of it, he's doing the fist drop and a few other things, but as you say, he's playing underdog babyface. His finisher isn't the Million Dollar Dream, and he's bleeding. I don't recall him ever, ever blading in any WWF match I saw him in. Yeah, done. Maybe did some steel cage matches on the circuit with someone like Jake the Snake Roberts. Mm. Like if you were to talk about the greats of the golden age of WWF, I think you put him in the top ten. Oh yeah, you got Hogan, Savage, one and two, Ultimate Warrior, Andre. After that, but really beyond that, Roddy Piper as well. But he's right up there, and he could have had a great run with the world title. But as we've always said in the WWF, it was always really the babyface champion. And so instead of him having the run as the... Although he did defend the world title in a few shots between the main event where Andre won and handed him the... And it was the first time we saw the Winged Eagle version of the world title. Mm. Between then and him being stripped of the title in the WrestleMania 4 tournament, 
You can find some shows where he comes out with the world title, is announced as the world champion, and defends the belts. <laughs> so, again, it's one of those ones where... It's like how the AWA suddenly tried to claim that Hulk Hogan was a multiple-time tra- world champion in retrospect. Yeah. Because they did loads of shady, dusty finishes around that time. So, if the WF wanted to change the history books at some point, they could have put him in there. But, uh, you know, Ted DiBiase, unfortunately in recent months yep. has become <laughs> a somewhat ironic figure, I suppose, in the way that he was depicted on screen and his later alleged transgressions at time of recording. Uh, no, I don't think they're alleged. He uh, he was ordered to repay in October 2021 about three quarters of a million dollars of misappropriated funds given to his church. So a court has made judgment. Like, we can say he was found guilty. I don't know if that's in appeal. I know that he denies so much of it. But that would explain why he's suddenly on the podcast market. (laughs) Well, and his son did plead guilty of uh, creating fraudulent statements as well. So it's not just him as well. So Runs in the family. Yeah, he has been sued um, as of May 2022. By uh, Mississippi government, named alongside Brett Favre. <laughs> yes, I was aware that Brett Favre was part of that, yeah. Yeah, it's not looking great. <laughs> no, but what did look great was this match. Although, as again, I say, the presentation, it's very... Like, the finish of the match is that Flair knocks him to the outside. And again, because I've said this whole sense of DiBiase not necessarily even knowing where he is and all the energy being sapped from him. Like, he can't even figure out how to get into the ring. And it's one of those examples, I actually think, that there's not a lot of them where the count-out finish is the perfect way to finish that match for the angle. Yeah, it, it works as well, because Ted's got him in the figure four, but because he's so weary, the first time he applies the figure four, he flares right by the ropes. So it's the energy that it takes Ted to move him to the centre of the ring that basically gives Flair that opening. So he's he's already expended all that energy getting it on in the first place. Then he's got to expend more energy putting Flair in the right position and him turning his back and Flair's just throws everything into that kick and he just goes flying like a ragdoll. I, I liked how the finish was structured. I think it was a really clever finish. I just think the whole story is so fantastically told from start to finish. They even say, it's almost like this idea that a face turn has been forced upon Ted DiBiase because he suddenly <laughs> becomes this underdog. Because they're saying, like, I don't necessarily agree with Ted DiBiase as a man, but I can't deny his... And it's, as he says... I, I may not get another chance at the world title. This doesn't come along very often, which is why Murdoch's desperate for it and why Ted DiBiase won't give it back. Yeah. And then why Ted DiBiase will fight through and show a bravery and a courage because that's literally all he can do at this point. He has to. Mm. He has to, to see if he's got that from within him. And as we see, Murdoch... And what's brilliant about that, I, th- I wondered if they could have even paid it, played it up a bit more because Murdoch does come out after that and pick up... DiBiase and I wondered if they were going to do like a Murdoch saying well look we're here now and that was such an amazing act of bravery and just play up that he was going to try to make up for his actions but no the bitterness is there and as you say he drops him with a brain buster on the outside and it is gruesome looking oh god yeah and perfectly executed and on that 
dirty concrete floor that Bill Watts insists upon him. Because when he went to WCW, he was like, first thing we're going to do is get rid of those fancy mats on the outside. You're going <laughs> to fall onto concrete, mate. <laughs> oh, such a stickler for, like, toughness, isn't he? He was such a great articulate voice. I mean... One of the dumbest things he ever did in WCW, and I think it applies here as well, is banning moves off the top row. Yeah. But there's a video of him where he's explaining the logic behind it and explaining what the differences are between two different types of things off the top row. And he's, again, he's so articulate at it that he's compelling to watch and to listen to. And you can see that there's a mind there, but it's a mind warped by so many things, as I've said in the past, you know, like, he weirdly was the guy more than anyone to push african-american wrestlers in the 80s and 90s but he was also a man that had very very dodgy views Mm. Uh, like he really hated roots put it that way (laughs) god knows what he would have thought of get out or 12 years a slave or anything along those lines or django django yeah he would have hated those oh well you know he's alive still so he might still hate those but he was a man that had like business going on outside of wrestling for years as well and he was also one of the top guys to talk to dave Meltzer, sort of educate him to the business as well you can see why this was cutting edge tv in 1985 yes they're telling the story there's like three clear chapters in it and it leaves you waiting for so much more and also rick flair still has the outstanding issues with butch reed that's faxed in dick slater as well Mm. and there's just so much going on in such a short again like oh man if there was a wrestling show nowadays it was like 40 minutes long oh but it was I'd be in hog heaven if it yeah. was like this yeah like i said with the medical tropes i've we've seen i've seen so many like oh in the trainer's room angles and they're so mainly because i've seen most of them in the wwe but AEW's done the same as well i can't i can't think of much different where it's so formulaic it's untrue this is like so cutting edge for me, but it's taking place so far in the past. But like I said, it's so compelling. Like, mm. we literally aren't allowed to see him. When they do that, usually, it's usually like the commentator going, oh, he's gone to a local medical facility. But because it's a throwaway, throwaway line by a commentator and then not the match fixer giving an update, it doesn't quite resonate for me. But this resonated. And he just does this great thing of just like a... Things having knock-on effect. Like, that's what great storytelling is. This happens, but then this happens. And because of that, this happens. And be- But then this happens. So because of that, this happens. So Butch Reed beats Ric Flair for the title, which means that he's going to get a title shot. But Ric Flair has taken out a bounty on him that is collected by Dick Slater, and his neck is severely injured. Because of that, Butch Reed can't defend the title. But a title match is still mandatory. And so because of that, the next person to get the title shot is Ted DiBiase. But Dick Murdoch also wants the title shot. And because of that, Dick Murdoch beats up Ted DiBiase, hoping that he'll be able to get it out of revenge, I suppose. But Ric Flair refuses, and Ted DiBiase still wants to wrestle. And because of that, Ric Flair beats Ted DiBiase, because Ted DiBiase is in no real condition to wrestle. Yeah. So just these, like, in 1992, when they did it, Rick Rude has a match with Nikita Koloff, but Cactus Jack gets involved. And because of that, Sting comes out to even the odds, who has a match later on with Big Van Vader. But Jake the Snake Roberts emerges from the crowd and attacks Sting and beats him up so badly that he can't wrestle. Because of that, 
they create a blind lottery system with all the people that could get a title shot, and Ron Simmons gets the title shot. But it's against Big Van Vader. Yeah. Because of that, they have the match, but Ron Simmons comes out on top, and suddenly, without knowing why he would have got the title shot at the start of the night, he does, history's made, and everyone goes apeshit. That's the domino effect, so that's... Yeah. That's what we like. We like when our stories are connected. Yeah, but like those dominoes are all falling over the course of one episode, whereas in WWE and AEW, I think, because they've got to fill so much time, it'll be a solitary domino will fall in this episode. And then in the next episode, a week later, someone has to come out and essentially have the same level of fury within them that's just happened last week, as opposed to like it may have only happened two minutes ago. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, during the Attitude Era with Vince Russo, you would get those one-episode storylines like Steve Austin taking Vince hostage or Vince in the hospital (laughs) or things along those lines. But now we were just all about those long narrative stories. What's really interesting to think about now is that... Because I always said, like, AEW back in 2019 or so was, like, all these different ideas to all these different people, like, all this potential. Whereas now, as we're coming up to five years, we know what AEW is. It has its foibles, it has its positives, it has its negatives. It already has its cliches. Yep. But all these different things that all these different guys wanted it to be, probably what Kenny Omega thought it was going to be, what the Young Bucks thought it was going to be, what Cody Rhodes thought it was going to be, what CM Punk thinks it should be, and what Tony Khan wants it to be are all clearly very different things. Mm. But I remember Cody saying that he wanted... AEW to have a lot of echoes of Mid-South. Yeah. And I can't... Outside of the blood, I can't really think of a lot that's doing that. But maybe the Codyverse was his idea of doing that? I don't know. I'm not sure. There was a bit of interconnectivity before... Before the pandemic, there was a bit of it. But it... it, And there were little bits during the pandemic, but I think some of that was born out of necessity. Like you had the fact that MJF was sat next to Sean Spears, which ultimately led to the pinnacle being created. Little little things like that, like... Um, I don't know if that's Mid-South specific, though. Not No, not Mid-South specific, but but it, it was like little things and little connective bits, basically. Yeah, that stripped down no-nonsense and not treating the audience like they were idiots, I suppose. Although... yeah. Boy, it was a lot of the uh, Codyverse stuff, stuff that makes you bang your head against a wall until you're losing the brain cells to make it more tolerable. People need filters, don't they? <laughs> Can't have complete freedom. <laughs> but what we've had complete freedom in is talking about this match, and like I said, like this whole angle from start to finish, it's like five stars. The match itself, you know, again, it's like ten, ten minutes of it. It almost feels like you're seeing, you're catching the last ten minutes of what was a classic Ric Flair Ted DiBiase match. I wish there were more of those out there in the ether. And I did just out of curiosity just look up what was happening with Ted DiBiase after he left WWF in '93, and up to that point where he did have to come back like four months later as first a commentator, and then they made him like the top heel manager of the WWF during its quite down time period. But he slotted so perfectly into the managerial role anyway it yeah. always made sense and it was like a sense of so much of the time Ted DiBiase was like I don't really want to do all the hard work of wrestling if I can avoid it I don't want to beat Hulk Hogan if I don't have to so Andre if you'll do the do the honors <laughs> <laughs> you like money don't you Andre <laughs> Yeah, and this this person's of similar height to the WF official is willing to have the surgery <laughs> <laughs> And as we say, just, oh, I can't win a belt. Well, I'm just going to make my own belts and defend that. (laughs) 
just looking at it, and what was funny was in 93 as well, that was when the NWA was finally stepping away from WCW and trying to branch out again on its own, its own brand. And they took away the, because they had the big gold belt and there was an NWA world champion as well as a WCW world champion at that time. You know, Chono winning the big gold belt after they'd taken it off Ric Flair and it was sort of becoming a semi, like back and forth between New Japan and, and NWA. And that was the only time where Barry Windham won a world title because otherwise Windham would have also fit into this perfect slot of a second generation wrestler who had all the physical gifts, but the timing was never quite right for him to be the big top guy of the promotion or, or the NWA world yeah. champion until it was beyond his prime years. And so when they took the belt away and Ric Flair had to be rebranded the WCW International World Champion, Ugh. was trading the big gold belt with Rick Rude, they were considering the three top candidates they had in 93 to be made the NWA World Champion were Terry Funk, naturally, Road Warrior Hawk, mm. and Ted DiBiase. Okay. So there might have been a world out there where DiBiase had won that title and we would have got a return to the workhorse DiBiase, but he would have been working in much smaller territories. I don't know, he would have turned up in like Smoky Mountain and Eastern Championship Wrestling before it became Extreme Championship Wrestling because obviously that was where we got the double cross when they gave the belt to Shane Douglas. Yeah. He was offered a WCW contract and he very nearly signed it and they were going to have him debut at Halloween Havoc 93 but they wanted him to go 30-minute time limit draw with Dustin Rhodes. Now, a reinvigorated, motivated Ted DiBiase not doing the Million Dollar Man gimmick debuting in WCW against 93 Dustin Rhodes could have been a fascinating match to watch, but DiBiase was like, that's dumb. Yeah. And maybe the contract just wasn't worth what he wanted to do. And as we say, he went to All Japan. Almost immediately, him and Stan Hansen won the tag titles of the Holy Demon Army, and he had a singles match with Junakiyama. And they were going to make them the top guys in. And maybe we could have even had Triple Crown champion or at least Triple Crown def- uh, challenging Ted DiBiase. Potentially. Yeah, but again, just that injury. And he had one of those guys that had that Lloyds of London insurance check. And so he never wrestled again after that. And he was going to be gone for at least a year. And I guess at that point after that year, he was just like, yeah, I prefer this. Yeah. And he did do good stuff as a manager. He was stuck with a weird hodgepodge of wrestlers, but he was like, they built the whole Undertaker storyline around them. He was such a prominent figure on WWF TV in 94. He was the manager of Psycho Sid against Diesel. He was the manager of Bam Bam Bigelow and IRS. And he was manager of Bam Bam Bigelow when he wrestled Lawrence Taylor in the main event of WrestleMania 11. Summer Sum 94, he's in the main event of that with the fake Undertaker. Yeah. It was a, an up and down roller coaster of quality in wrestling at that point, but he was still just so important to wrestling he really is one of the greats and it's a shame that his name is maybe a little bit forgotten because he didn't have those runs Mm. on tv you know you don't have all those collections of ted dibiase five-star matches that maybe he would have had if he'd stayed in the working territories that dave Meltzer preferred Meltzer always considered him one of the five best wrestlers in north america even during all the wf's time period he just also was wrestling in a style that Meltzer was never that into yeah, the requirements of that territory of the WWF. Well, WWF wasn't really a territory, I suppose, depending on how you look at it. Obviously, there's going to be some more of that Teddy Biasi stuff out there. We should watch the 
Jim Duggan tuxedo steel cage coal miners glove match or whatever it is that's just <laughs> the most bonkers sounding. And they, their feud was over who was the best dressed man in wrestling as well. Just like Bill Watts booked that as a storyline, and it had <laughs> Jim Duggan in it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and also, yeah, seeing that more no-nonsense brawler power guy, Jim Duggan, as well, would be really good. But, like I said, I wanted to to see that. Flair DiBiase, as well, is just such a thing that, like, what we could have got from them in yeah. if that had been a regular thing. Or if it had been in WCW in 93, he would have had a, maybe would have had a run with Ric Flair. Quite possibly. Yeah. And again, it's crazy that he just retires at 40 with all the stuff that he managed to pack into those years and... You know, he would have been, what, 44, 45 when the whole Attitude Era and NWO? That would have been fascinating, like a, a Ted DiBiase that could still go. Maybe going back to the WWF and being uh, put against Stone Cold Steve Austin. or so. I suppose it would be redundant with Vince McMahon essentially taking that role on. Yeah. Afterwards. It's a bit of a hat on a hat. <laughs> yeah, but that was also funny as well because the WWF, again, because I was reading the back issues of the, Mel- of the Observer just searching for DiBiase, they said in the magazine as DBSC left, that he'd actually made some bad investments and lost most of his money. Ah. Um, obviously, that got backtracked at when he came back and he was still the million-dollar man. Yeah. And like I said, perfect gimmick for a manager. But what they could have done, and Melt says, that's to leave the door open that he could return as a babyface. And again, like, babyface Ted DBSC in the WWF in 1995, again, could have been fascinating. They could have done a version of, like, the loser Baron Corbin gimmick. Maybe. They essentially did that with Dead DiBiase's first hiring for the Million Dollar Corporation, which was Nikolai Volkov. The idea being that he was just completely out of money, and so he becomes... Like, he's treated even worse than Virgil. Ah. And there's these brilliant aspects to it, because obviously Ted DiBiase has the big suit with the dollar signs on it, the tuxedo and everything. And he makes Nikolai Volkov walk around with a tuxedo t-shirt... And instead of having dollar signs on what is the the lapels, it's got cent signs on it. (laughs) Brilliant. Uh, But yeah, Teddy Biasi. Not necessarily a great man, but a great wrestler. (laughs) You can say that about so many people. It's kind of sad, isn't it? Yeah, weirdly, financial irregularities, depending on how you want to look at it. I guess because he used religion as a part of it as well, probably makes it worse. But yeah. You always get, you know, the shady religious types. Well, You do. There are bad apples everywhere, aren't there? Yeah. So that was my pick for Match of the Week. Assuming no five stars in the interim is going to be Simon's pick next week. And Simon, it's a similar sort of look and setup, although it's all glitzed and 2010-ized. And it's actually, we probably should have done this quite a while ago because it's a match that we've already discussed from a different perspective in a Silver Screen Visions episode. What is it that we'll be talking about next week? We'll be talking about a match that takes place on a TV taping of Championship Wrestling of Hollywood between King David, David Arquette, and RJ City. Mm-hmm. Before he was an interviewer, he was a wrestler with a finisher called the Knee Arthur. Will he get to <laughs> use it on David Arquette? We'll have to wait and find out. But until then, Simon, if people want to get in touch with you about more Ted DiBiase matches that you should check out, how can they do so? Uh, people can get in touch with me on Twitter. I'm standing on Simon Cross Free. Free for the liters of blood that Ted DiBiase lost. My name's Lorcan Mullen. That's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A-N, which are the middle letters in band, as in pressure band, that was very poorly wrapped around Ted DiBiase's head during the course of that match. 
That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, letterbox. If you put that gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. LMTYspod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. But there's nothing left to say at this point, except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. My name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a great week. Until the next week.